0: And uh, I had a b- little thing of tamarind candies in my apartment, and I gave one to my mom. I was like, hey, you should try this. And she goes, this reminds me of my childhood. And I'm looking, woman, <laughs> you grew up in a fishing village of 300 people. How do you have a memory of a tropical taste like this?
1: Welcome to Book Me, sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. I'm Costas Raises. Today, author Simon Thibault. When you're cruising the shelves of a bookseller, deciding whether to buy a particular cookbook is like speed dating. In just a few minutes, you need to learn as much as possible about the promise it holds for you in the future. Will it be just a few impassioned bouts of experimenting with new recipes? Or the basis of an affectionate long-term relationship, a cookbook you can't imagine living without? Simon Thibault's Pantry and Palette, Remembering and Rediscovering Acadian Food, is in the latter category. If you care about the soul of a cuisine, its roots and its signature ingredients, the way dishes are prepared and on which occasions they're served, then you'll be savoring this book for years to come, not mention the recipes. Simon is also the developmental editor-at-large at Nimbus Publishing, and we'll hear more about that later on. Simon Thibault, bienvenue. Merci. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me.
0: How did Lard help inspire you to write Pantry and Palette? It's always, it's true. I do tell the story a lot and it's one that engages people in a fun way. I am lucky enough to have a father who goes hunting. Um, He... Goes hunting for all kinds of things, and usually rabbit is one of the things that he delivers to me. And I was thinking, what am I going to do with all of this rabbit? Well, actually, hair, technically, wild right. hair. And um, I was like, I'm going to make a rillette, which is a French type of pâté in which you take the meat, and then you confit it, and you would cook it in, in a large amount of fat, and then you would shred it. And then that shredded meat is added to more fat, and then it makes this really lovely, spreadable thing. And so... I decided to make it, and it uses a l- rather significantly large amount of lard, and uh, I had recently learned to render my own lard, which is a lot of fun, and so I had done everything. I had shredded it, did everything that needs to be done, and then I'm about to wash my hands, and I turn the sink on with the back part of my wrist to so I don't get lard on everything, and um, I'm waiting for the water to get warm. And so I'm rubbing my hands like this, and I had this Acadian Proustian moment, perhaps, <laughs> uh, in which I thought, this is a sensation that I have never had before, but that I know that generations of women have had within my own family and other families. This feeling of this smooth, silky, very animalistic sensation of cleaning, but also just the very tactile sensation of what it's like to have something like lard covering your hands as you've been doing something that you'll be able to eat for an extended period of time. And it was a very tactile moment that I wouldn't have been able to experience about my own culinary history and heritage that otherwise... I think I ever would have been able to encounter in any way, shape, or form,
1: unless you get back to the the real essentials of dealing with lard. Exactly. With both hands, getting both hands into it. But you had to make a decision about whether to actually write about this this moment and everything it meant to you. What set you on that journey to to write a book about Acadian cooking?
0: It's funny. It's I had to be invited to do it. And not by my own family or by my own need, I had to be invited actually by Nimbus. Um, I had a meeting with uh, an editor um, at Nimbus, uh, Patrick Murphy, who is no longer there, unfortunately. Uh, he's now on to Lovely Pastures. And uh, But he had heard some of my work that I had done for CBC Radio, really, actually. Uh, you would have been there when I was doing work. I was doing a series called Essie Sit down. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Or and take a seat. Have a seat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. seat wall. And so uh, it was all about food and culinary history and culinary heritage and looking at food in this very kind of personal way of how food has impacted people's lives and who they are as individuals. And so he and you know, I had a meeting and he said, what about a book about Acadian food? And I said, who cares? Honestly, that was the my gut reaction was who cares? And then he's like, no, I think there's a market for it. And so I thought, OK. I'll think about it. And then I was at home looking at my own collection of cookbooks. And I'm looking at books about Chinese cuisine, Thai cuisine, Mexican cuisine, the cuisine of northern France, the cuisine of the Jews of Italy, the cuisines of southern Japan, highly specific books that I personally had made an effort to buy and someone had made an effort to write and to sell. And I thought, there were no books about Acadian food in this manner. So I'm going to do this. And that's how I ended up with my hands in the sink covered in in lard. But um, it's interesting because I wrote about this in the book a little bit, um, the whole process of it. And it was funny because I was kind of lost as to how to approach this. And I was very lucky. Um, This woman uh, named Naomi Duguid, who is a multiple James Beard Award winner, multiple award winner in general, and she's kind of was my mentor and still kind of is in a lot of ways. And she said to me, write the recipes and you'll know where to go. And I knew that I wanted to integrate the recipes of my family. And years beforehand, my mother, through a circumstance, had given me a series of notebooks, which were her mother's and her grandmother's and other family members. And so I actually talk about this in the book, um, if you'll permit me. Please. <laughs> Sitting at my kitchen table... A step or two away from my grease-tinged hands was a record of the cooking of these women, written down in notebooks of now-yellowed paper. Some of the notebooks are no bigger than my hand. Some of them have lost their bindings, their pages on the verge of falling out. They became very precious to me as I began to cook from them. I went deeper into the family notebooks, and I found recipes that gave their user a list of ingredients with varying scales of measurement and accuracy— I found notes and recipes created and transcribed by women who had spent years in kitchens. They only needed the smallest amount of references to remind them how to do these things. These recipes were almost second nature to these women. Directions were spotty, if they were included at all. I had my work cut out for me. <laughs> but the more I cooked and the more I baked, the more I figured out the missing pieces of these recipes. I came to revere these Acadian women and other women like them. I started digging elsewhere for more recipes like these in an old ladies' auxiliary cookbook and from other Acadian regions in the Maritimes. And eventually, I had enough to make up the contents of this book, and it is devoted to the collective and semi-collected works of women who cooked for and amidst generations of Acadians. There's your explanation.
1: Now, people who immigrate from wherever to wherever uh, add ingredients that they encounter in their new home sort of meld them with uh, some of the traditional recipes they might just carry in their minds. But uh, I found in this book about Acadian cuisine some some real surprises about uh, ingredients that became normal normalized. Such as. Well, how about tamarind? <laughs> how, how did tamarind of all things? end up in Acadian pantries. And perhaps you should explain what it is for people who haven't run across it
0: here. So tamarind in its truest form is actually a a type of fruit. It is a pod-like fruit that has a rather sticky, sweet, and sour filling filled with seeds. Um, Anyone who has ever been to an Asian grocery store, especially South Asian or Southeast Asian, would have seen plastic-wrapped blocks of just the pulp. Um, You can sometimes find the pods of a sweet version of tamarind in international grocers or whatnot. But um, again, one of those weird, synchronous moments. Um, I knew tamarind because I cooked a lot of Southeast Asian food and a lot of South Asian food, Indian cookery and Thai and whatnot. And uh, I had a little thing of tamarind candies in my apartment, and I gave them to my mom. I was like, hey, you should try this. And she goes... This reminds me of my childhood. And I'm looking, woman, (laughs) you grew up in a fishing village of 300 people. How do you have a memory of a tropical taste like this? And then I fell into another rabbit hole of discovering how, because a lot of Acadian communities and a lot of like Atlantic Canadian and New England communities would have been sending salted fish and various, or smoked fish in various forms to the Caribbean islands. And that is where the trade of that type of foodstuffs. Uh, Molasses as well. Exactly. That is where molasses uh, is, why it is so intrinsic to Acadian and Atlantic Canadian pantries, as well as um, nutmeg and cinnamon and cloves and all these things, because those foods would have been grown there, but those would have been brought to that region through um, various diasporas. And also, so like South Asian diaspora due to British India at that time would have been a British colony, so indentured servitude, and I'm using the word in air mm-hmm. quotes around here. We're actually talking about slavery. Um, and so these things that I brought about, and so something as simple as a candy in your home or um, an ingredient has so many layers and so many connections. And I do have to say, I, the thing I have appreciated the most about after now that this book has come out has been so many people... Coming up to me in my community where I grew up, but also in the larger Canadian communities um, throughout Atlantic Canada has been people saying to me that they had no idea that there was this depth to their own culture and their own culinary heritage. And it's been really illuminating for them, but also for me. And I've really appreciated it.
1: Now, the book is Pantry and palate. We've uh, just discussed how tamarind ended up in Acadian Pantries. But uh, when it comes to palate, uh, many Acadian foods and condiments have a real edge, and I'm
0: thinking especially the ones with the salty edge, like the uh, oignon salé. I'm always fascinated how (laughs) people respond to oignon salé. I did an interview in uh, KCRW's Good Food uh, in California, which is probably one of my favorite radio shows. It's an NPR station based out of there. And uh, the host there asked me, she's like, tell me about the oignon salad." And I'm thinking, because to me, it is so rudimentary. And so it's in every home in southwestern Nova Scotia. It is, so, onions. It is so ubiquitous. But you were to talk to Acadians and also to Quebecers about the tradition of salting certain things in certain ways, and especially green things. Um, Like the herbs. Exactly. Les herbes salées, which you would find uh, in Quebec and in parts of New Brunswick. And um, whether it be a mix of herbs or just one herb, or where I grew up, it is salted scallions or green onions. But I mean, you go through any population where there have been Celts, there tend to be salt mines or salt wells. And so French, to some degree, were previously Celts, Gallic, that's pretty much where it is. That's where that whole thing comes from. And it's one of those things that it used to be out of necessity. And after the 20th century with the development of dried herbs and whatnot being so easily available in grocery stores, the need to do these things still there. But that doesn't negotiate the psychological need to have these flavors in our home on a daily basis.
1: You're a very adventurous cook. I know that. Tell (laughs) tell us why you tackled cooking a pig's
0: head, an entire pig's head. Um, To see if I could. Uh, (laughs) There is a small amount of enjoyment of walking around a farmer's market with a disembodied pig head underneath your arm, which is a true joy. Um, I was a vegetarian for a while, and uh, when I started eating meat again, it was mostly as a response to... If an animal is going to die for me, the least I can do is use as much of it as possible. Hence the pig head. And uh, it was one of those things that I took at home. I did it three or four different times, if not more, in various ways. Learned to get over my squeamishness about animals being used in specific ways. Um, I will admit there is a certain amount of fun in posting photos of a pig's head on social media in various forms, Um, especially to my own aunt, who was horrified (laughs) uh, and still teases me about it. But it was one of those things of, Acadian cookery and a lot of cookery in traditional forms in a place like Atlantic Canada tends to be one of subsistence. And subsistence means making specific choices in which if you are choosing to kill an animal the how, the when, and the why dictate where and how or why that animal is going to be used. Mm -hmm. The same reason of like, if you're going to kill a pig, well, then that is the day that you're going to make blood sausage because the blood is fresh. Then you're going to clean the rest of the entrails for sausage for later. You will have fresh fat in your home. Uh, For the longest time, fresh fat was a luxury. Therefore, that is the day you're going to make deep fried things. That's the day you're going to make donuts and all kinds of sweet little things like that. That is also the day that you're going to share part of what you made in your fresh meat so that you can have fresh meat and your neighbor can have fresh meat for up to a few days. And then you go to your next neighbor's house and then you're going to kill that pig. And so it's this rotation that lasts almost a month, two months, in which everybody has fresh meat for a few months and then the rest of it is all salted away. And so it's this, it is subsistence, but artistry and community in the sense of we will be a community and we will share our things together. You know what it's I mean? A, and, and it's, in a way, very well choreographed and synchronized, all oh, this absolutely. stuff. But it was one of those things. I remember doing a talk years ago in the community where I grew up in um, Claire or La Baie sainte Sainte-Marie, and I was speaking at a festival there, a cul- culinary and cultural festival called the Festival de Clarté. And uh, I asked, how many people here eat boudin, which is a blood sausage? And out of a room of 40 people, maybe eight or nine hands went up. How many of you know how to make it? Two or three hands. Now, arguably, this is a room of people generally above the age of 50. So there is a memory as well as a certain knowledge of seeing things done. And then I said, how many of you know how to kill a pig and collect the blood and no hands were left? I'm like, that is your As difficult as it is from an ethical or uh, personal kind of way, that is your culinary and your cultural heritage disappearing right in front of you. We don't have to eat these things. We don't have to eat a pig head anymore. We don't have to eat bud pudding. But we can because it is tasty, and also we should because it is an example of the spirit of survival through subsistence and beyond survival into actually living with subsistence. It's a
1: a demarcation point, in a way, in that culture. Oh, absolutely. When you you stop killing your own animals.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: Now, let's change pace just before you go. Uh, Tell us about... Uh, the latest hat. And I know you wear many hats. You're a broadcaster. You're a DJ. (laughs) Uh, But what about the latest developmental
0: editor-at-large at at Nimbus? I'm in love with this job. And I'm not (laughs) saying that because this is a Nimbus production. I'm actually saying it because it's true. Um, It came to be in a fun way because uh, I kept on having conversations with Whitney Moran, uh, who was my editor for Pantry and Palette and is an editor at Nimbus. And I said, have you spoken to so-and-so about doing a book? Have you guys thought about doing a book about this or this and this? And this happened over a significant amount of time. And eventually they said to me, how would you like to come aboard and help make those ideas that you've been talking about come to fruition? That in which a developmental editor's job is to help writers develop their ideas into a solid thing, whether that thing be a book of fiction or nonfiction or a cookbook or whatnot. And so my focus is specifically around um, all things that are culinary, all things that are Acadian and all things that fall within the LGBTQ. So those are the people that I'm seeking out mostly. Um, not that I am have no problem looking towards other things, but that's my focus. And um, the way that I'm doing that is, it's kind of like being a coach to someone. It's going up to people who that you know that have interesting stories to tell Either they have already told them to you or in public spaces or to amongst friends, and then helping them understand how to make that story come to fruition, but also an understanding of the publishing industry and an understanding of what it is to write a book. Meaning there is more to just sitting down and typing out words. It's the planning of it, both the planning of the writing of it, the planning of promotion beforehand, after and during um. I essentially get my writers to essentially put together a book proposal and it creates an infrastructure for them in which all of the kind of uh, machinations that happen during the writing process have already been dealt with. So the imposter syndrome, the lack of knowing what your subject truly is. And so it's really about helping someone come from point A, figuring out everything to do from A, B, C, and D, and then all the way down to when it's done in the X, Y, Z. I just finished recently working with someone who we're hoping uh, it'll be picked up by Nimbus, but it looks like it probably can and or will be. But it's one of those things that she feels now that she could write the book much more comfortably because she knows what she's in for. Yeah which when you start writing a book, if you don't know what you're in for, you're in for a rude awakening.
1: (laughs) It's more than just putting words on a page. Absolutely. Well, Simon, thank you very much for coming in to book me. Thank you so much for having me. Simon Thibault is the author of Pantry and Palette: Remembering and Rediscovering Acadian Food. To hear conversations with more of the people who create books in Atlantic Canada, go to bookmepodcast.ca or just pop bookme with an exclamation mark in your search engine. If you'd like to rate and or review our podcast, you can do that on iTunes. BookMe is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Thanks to the Halifax Central Library for the use of its studio, our producer is Robin Grant, and Lynn Fox knows all the technical ingredients for making a delicious podcast. I'm Costas Halifrazos. Now, let's go read. <laughs>